Right. Welcome back to the bedside, everyone. Uh, this is an American Thoracic Society podcast that's geared towards addressing commonly encountered problems in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Today, um, we're really excited to have uh, Dr. Alan Walkie. Um, he's an expert in cardiac arrhythmias in the ICU. Uh, a little bit of background, I uh, did medical school at the University of Massachusetts, residency in internal medicine at Beth Israel in Boston, um, and then now is a professor of medicine at Boston University. Um, so we're really excited to have him here. And, uh, and Alan, could you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this field? Thanks, Matt. And thanks for inviting me. I'm also very excited to be here. I became interested in looking at uh, mostly at atrial fibrillation that occurs among patients with sepsis. Um, because during my fellowship and my training, I encountered, I, th I think, strangely, a large number of patients who had new onset atrial fibrillation during their admission to the ICU, often when they had uh, sepsis. And so I began to ask my attendings, you know, how should we approach this? Should we be pursuing rate control or rhythm control? Uh, do we consult the cardiologist? Do we, you know, what do we do? What does it mean? Or is it, and so every time I had a new attending on service and every time we decided to consult uh, a specialist, um, they had a different answer. And so that's when I realized that I don't think anybody really knows anything about this and decided that um, as I was simultaneously learning how to do research, that this would be a field that I would pursue because it seemed like one of those areas that was falling in between specialties where critical care doctors were experiencing it, but atrial fibrillation wasn't sort of in the wheelhouse. And then cardiologists would also be caring for these patients, but it wasn't, you know, their patients that they were seeing. It was the patients they were consulting on. And, and so no one was seeming to, you know, be taking this up as, as, a, as an issue. I love that explanation. One of the reasons I was so eager to have you on the show is because throughout my training, I also noticed just very variable practice among different attending style and how this was uh, addressed. Um, and and so I, I am excited to hear at least your take, uh, maybe a little bit of my take uh, as we kind of walk through a case. So um, we can kind of uh, jump right in. Uh, so the patient we have today is a 76-year-old uh, gentleman who has a past medical history of diabetes and hypertension. So he came into the intensive care unit with septic shock and acute respiratory failure from a community-acquired pneumonia. So he's, he's pretty sick. He's on high-flow nasal cannula, 50 liters, 60%, uh, and he's on day three of his hospital's uh, admission. And he's been on uh, mid-range norepinephrine since about the time he's been uh, in your intensive care unit. Um, so at, at right after shift change, we'll pretend that you're doing night shifts and I'm doing night shifts. Um, but right after shift change, you're, you're paged, uh, to his room because the nurse noticed his heart rate abruptly, uh, jumped right up to 155. Um, and they think that it's irregular, um, and they want you to come, uh, check the patient out. So um, when you're walking over, uh, what would the, the framework of approaching this issue be uh, for when you get to the bedside? Great. Um, so, you know, one, I think this is a common case and common scenario that, that we'd encounter. Um, 
in the ICU and uh, also common to have someone uh, to be called as soon as you arrive after shift change, <laughs> especially on the night shift. So uh, lots of uh, common things that we're hearing. Um, so yes, as we're walking to the room of a patient who were called for a new abrupt increase in heart rate, the question is why, you know, what is what is going on? So the things that I'd be thinking of, one is how stable is the patient? How quickly do we need to act here? Um, so when I ask how stable uh, everyone's in the ICU that, that we're talking about in, in this scenario, so um, everyone is, is critically ill, but has their condition changed acutely and how? So um, we know their heart rate went up, but what's happened to sort of other vital signs and other clinical signs of organ perfusion? Has their mental status changed? Are they more short of breath? Has their uh, respiratory rate increased, oxygenation decreased, uh, blood pressure dropped? All, all of those things you'd be thinking about. And thinking about, you know, I know this this topic is, I guess it's broadly arrhythmias in the ICU. So what, you know, a sudden increase in heart rate is usually an arrhythmia, uh, a sinus tachycardia generally happens more gradually. So thinking about a sudden change in heart rate, what is the arrhythmia and, and wanting to um, get the telemetry strips and get likely an EKG to, to make a definitive diagnosis of what the arrhythmia is. So you get to the room, the patient is mentating well. He's kind of wondering why everybody's just looking at him um, and staring up at his monitor. Uh, so he doesn't have any worsening shortness of breath. He's on the same high flow settings he was on before. His blood pressure is about the same 90s over 50s on the kind of medium dose norepinephrine. Uh, he doesn't appear to be in any distress and, and denies chest pain. While you're chatting with him, you're looking up at his monitor and it looks like he's irregular on the monitor. Um, but of course you can't tell. Um, the nurse has already called for the EKG, anticipating your request, and you're handed a nice EKG that shows indeed um, it's irregularly irregular with a heart rate, you know, in the 140s. Uh, and of course you notice on the monitor that uh, the heart rate's kind of bouncing all around, anywhere from 140 to 175 or so, but kind of mostly in the 150s. So with this information, like you got a, you got a real high heart rate staring you in the face. Everyone wants to know what you're going to do. Uh, what's your first move? Great. Yeah. So the first thought is, you know, the, that this patient is moving uh, off of the ACLS emergent defibrillation pathway that you would pursue if the you believed that the atrial fibrillation was causing a sudden severe deterioration. So that's sort of the first thought. We're not going to be bringing in the uh, cardioversion uh, machine. We're not going to be shocking him. But we see that his heart rate has gone from the 80s in normal sinus rhythm up to the 140s to 170s. So that's a, a doubling of his heart rate. Um, and that's attributable to the atrial fibrillation, we think. However, we don't see the sudden deterioration that would put him on an ACLS type of pathway that would require defibrillation. So we're thinking that um, this is a heart rate that over time might be causing problems, and we need to think about how to deal with it. But 
we don't need to do something, you know, this moment to get his heart rate lower. And we need to start thinking about why did this happen? And in, at the same time, thinking about how we might get his heart rate down in, in a safe fashion. Awesome. So what would some of the workup you would send off be? Like if, if the nurse says, I got the, I got the arterial line ready for, for labs, what would you like? Uh, what, what are the things that you would be sending off here? And I think first, just thinking about his history. So you didn't mention that he had a history of prior atrial fibrillation or other known cardiac disease or cardiac arrhythmias. And so this sounds like a new onset or at least a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. It's something we commonly see in sepsis. Sepsis is one of the most common situations where atrial fibrillation happens in hospitalized patients. And sepsis increases the risk of having new onset atrial fibrillation by about sevenfold as opposed to any other diagnosis in the hospital. So this is commonly seen. In terms of why it's happening, um, there's a lot of different pathways that lead to atrial fibrillation in a patient with sepsis. The first pathway begins before they came in the hospital with sepsis in that um, most patients with new onset atrial fibrillation have some risk factor of atrial remodeling. So their their atrium may be fibrosed either because they have advanced age or have some cardiac risk factors. But cardiac risk factors alone don't explain atrial fibrillation during sepsis. So there's other things that happen during the sepsis um, that contribute to atrial fibrillation. So patients are on, um, as you mentioned with this patient, beta agonist with norepinephrine, have high sympathetic tone, being acutely ill. They can have electrolyte disturbances with potassium and magnesium being most commonly associated with onset of atrial fibrillation. They can have acute kidney injury, inflammation. So all these things combine with this predisposition to often trigger atrial fibrillation. And so some of those things are modifiable and some of them are not. So I'd be looking for modifiable intervention. So can we improve oxygenation? Can we decrease sympathetic um, stimulation either by patient that's in acute distress somehow and limiting that, for example, someone has ventilator dyssynchrony or agitation, or have we created sympathetic stimulation with the medications we're giving, for example, norepinephrine? And can we improve electrolytes? And those are sort of the first steps. So in terms of instructions for the nurse, we'd want to um, both look for things that might be acutely causing atrial fibrillation. What does his blood gas look like? Uh, what are his electrolytes? Awesome. Well, it sounds like this guy was really a setup to develop atrial fib, you know, with the hypertension, diabetes, sepsis, being on a beta agonist for a couple of days, probably not sleeping in the ICU for a couple of days, probably didn't help his cause either. Um, so he, and he, of course, with the hypertension, diabetes, cardiac risk factors. Quick question. Maybe just because my job is to worry about worst case a lot of the time. Do you routinely send a troponin off in the event that, you know, you have a patient without chest pain, the EKGs clipping away in the 150s, not feeling great about interpreting the ST changes uh, at that fast of a rate. Do you routinely send a troponin? Is ACS um, or acute coronary syndrome a common cause of new onset atrial fibrillation? For patients with sepsis in the ICU or patients with another uh, 
another condition that's led to the ICU admission that's not atrial fibrillation leading to the ICU admission as the primary diagnosis. Usually ACS is not the cause of the atrial fibrillation. ACS can certainly occur in patients with sepsis, um, but it often atrial fibrillation is not the presenting um, sign or symptom of ACS. Um, and so a troponin, I don't think is a must send lab in this situation. If that EKG did show clear ST segment changes in an anatomic distribution, I might be more tempted to, to send it. Also, I think for patients with new onset atrial fibrillation, part of the workup is to get an echocardiogram or at least do you know, a point of care ultrasound to look at the heart, uh, to, to look at ventricular function, and also to assess volume status that can contribute to uh, atrial fibrillation, so atrial stretch. Point of care ultrasound showed a segmental wall motion abnormality, or the EKG showed signs of ischemia, then yes, I would send a troponin, but I wouldn't say that's a routine part of my workup for new atrial fibrillation that's uh, secondary to sepsis. That's reassuring, but but always knowing, especially if, if, for instance, a patient's intubated and can't talk to you, can't tell you if they're having chest pain, always being on guard for something that could be really hurting them is important. But it's nice to know I don't have to be committed to a troponin every time that um, be faced with um, interpreting. The answer is, you know, it doesn't look like this is ACS before the troponin. You know, what are you going to do after the troponin? The troponin is going to be elevated 50% of the time for patients with sepsis. So half of patients with sepsis have a increased troponin level, what it means is unclear and, you know, worthy of a whole other podcast probably of um, myocardial injury or uh, the troponin leak, quote unquote, of sepsis. But um, so whether how helpful it is in the setting of atrial fibrillation is probably not usually helpful. Yeah. Well, we'll save ourselves the troponin headache this time, <laughs> uh, but I'll, I may take you up on, on that invitation. <laughs> so, uh, so we have some of the initial uh, workup back. The electrolytes are not showing any uh, significant uh, abnormalities. Uh, the magnesium and the potassium, uh, calcium are all in, in the expected ranges. The blood gas um, also is, uh, is, looking good. Uh, no no big change in hypoxemia, uh, no drop in the PaO2, no severe acidosis. Um, however, you do notice that his bicarb has been creeping down. Um, it was last 22. He's now down to 18. You've got a lactate with all that. The lactate's creeping up from around 1.7 to 2.2. Patient uh, overall is, is doing about the same for the next couple hours, but then starts kind of creeping up on his requirement of um, norepinephrine. And with that, you know, the heart rate's starting to get a little bit worse. It's starting Starting to get more consistently into the 160s, 170s, um, and and I'm just wondering, you know, now if you're if you're kind of being tempted to say maybe this is starting to become a little more um, significant, um, you know, what's your what's your first go to? Uh, as far as treatment for this. Not quite unstable enough. And this is an area I think is really, really hard, right? If you're unstable, it almost makes it easy. Uh, everyone's unstable in the ICU, as you pointed out. Um, but gosh, do you push a little metope and pray? You know, do you reach for the amnio? You know, do you switch them to fennel? Like there's, I've seen so many things done. What's your approach? Yeah, 
And there are so many things that, that you could do that probably would be, quote unquote, the right answer in this situation. And um, so my approach is initially to try to remove things that I think I might be doing that could be contributing to the high heart rate. So before giving uh, a new drug to maybe treat a side effect that I'm causing. <laughs> so um, one of those things might be to try to limit the beta agonism that the norepinephrine is giving. We do know from um, meta-analyses and, and multiple studies now looking at high versus low blood pressure targets uh, that are RCTs that um, limiting the catecholamine vasopressors that we give has lower rates of atrial fibrillation. We also know that um, from some recent studies by Annika Law from, from Boston University that um, that using phenylephrine instead of norepinephrine for patients with new atrial fibrillation results in a lower heart rate you, about, by about six beats per minute on average for patients that have rapid ventricular response. So all that together, just clinically, if we limit our beta agonism, we can probably slow the heart rate. I don't know if we can convert patients after they've gone into it, but, but we can reduce the chance that patients will flip into atrial fibrillation. So all that being said, um, some strategies that we could use to limit the beta agonism would be to add something like vasopressin as a um, adjuvant presser to allow us to decrease the norepinephrine dose and see how that, how that goes for you and for the patient. So that might be my initial approach. Another approach might be to switch the norepinephrine for phenylephrine, which will slow the heart rate as well. But I think right now um, I would favor adding vasopressin to titrate down the norepinephrine. That makes a lot of sense. Take away the things that you're doing to the, the patient that could be causing harm while you're trying to, to help makes a, lot of, makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I love those kind of elegant fixes to the problem. You mentioned kind of other infusions and, and I, was, I was thinking about um, Esmolol. Can I specifically ask how you incorporate Esmolol in your practice? I mean, I've, there's some interesting data out on that. What's, what's your take? I like Esmolol. Uh, what, why I like it is because it's incredibly short acting. So if you choose poorly with Esmolol, it, it only is a poor decision for a minute. So um, you, can, you can stop it and it doesn't linger. So for someone like this, he's on the edge, right? He's on high flow nasal cannula. He's on vasopressors. If we make a mistake, in our care, we can tip him in the wrong direction pretty easily. So you don't want to make long-term treatment decisions that are, are not readily reversible. So Esmolol is readily reversible. So rather than, you know, say push five milligrams of IV metoprolol, I'd be more likely to start an Esmolol drip and then titrate it up, probably without a bolus in the situation to try to gain rate control. There, I think there's a lot of reasons why beta blockers for me are a nice first treatment for when you've decided that you need additional rate control above and beyond uh, the other the other strategies that I discussed in terms of removing the things that we're doing or um, or addressing the modifiable things like uh, electrolytes. So the reasons why beta blockers, or for me, the first choice are 
uh, one, there's evidence now from multiple RCTs that um, beta blockers during septic shock may not be harmful, at least, and uh, potentially beneficial, even outside of the realm of atrial fibrillation. So there was recently a study of Landiolol, which is a short-acting beta blocker like Esmolol in um, Lancet Respiratory Medicine that looked at patients with sepsis plus tachycardia. And those that got Landiolol had a decreased risk of having uh, new onset atrial fibrillation and and a trend towards better outcomes. So I I feel, I think, less um, worried about starting a beta blocker during septic shock than maybe I would have five or 10 years ago because there's accumulating evidence there. Um, There's also physiological reasons why beta blockers might be beneficial during uh, shock uh, in terms of in terms of hemodynamically improving ventricular arterial elastance, um, which can occur during AFib with with high rates, where the essentially the heart starts working against itself in terms of the um, the waves that are coming back to it from the systemic arterial circulation. Um, there's other potential benefits of beta blockers that are more experimental or theoretical in terms of immune effects as well, but. Um, overall, uh, also our studies that are that are observational in nature have uh, comparing beta blockers to calcium channel blockers, especially show um, better outcomes in terms of a slightly decreased mortality in, uh, overall on average when beta blockers are used as a first choice for atrial fibrillation during sepsis as compared to calcium channel blockers. Well, well, that makes that makes a, a lot of sense. You know, short-acting medications and the the drip infusions of Esmolol being beneficial, and don't have to commit to that five imatope uh, really would make me feel maybe a little less sweaty um, standing in front of him. But I want to ask you about a couple other medications while we got you here. Digoxin. I mean, a lot of pros maybe in that it may it may not drop the blood pressure, um, but it may not drop the heart rate either. What is your interpretation of digoxin here? Right. I think digoxin does drop the heart rate. It just does it in like four to six hours. <laughs> so it, it just takes longer to, to kick in. So Nick Bosch, who did a study comparing um, the medications that are started for uh, rate or rhythm control for atrial fibrillation during sepsis. So looking at patients who were started on beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, amiodarone or digoxin found that Within one hour, beta blockers had the largest decrease in heart rate. Heart rate. So again, more evidence supporting beta blockers as maybe your first choice. But after six hours, there was no difference in heart rate regardless of the medication you chose. So all of the medications probably work, but um, beta blockers might work fastest. Well, you uh, have... Uh, pointed out that I'm an impatient person, which may be part of the reason I went to uh, critical care medicine in the first place. Thoughts on on amniodarone? I know we're getting into we're getting into a whole different strategy here, but I see amniodarone reached for a lot of the time when people are worried about hemodynamic. What's the data behind that? Sure, I think we're all impatient, which is why we became intensivists, or else uh, we we want to see <laughs> things we're doing working now. So amniodarone. Also something that takes a little while longer to to work. For me, it's a second line medication and something that needs to be 
considered when you're thinking about amiodarone is that it is a often a rhythm control strategy rather than a rate control strategy. Although, just as an aside and a caveat, um, as a continuous intravenous infusion, amiodarone does have beta blocking effects and can be a um, mild beta blocker. So it can slow the heart rate even without having converted to uh, sinus rhythm. So actively converting a patient to sinus rhythm may be risky approach if the patient isn't a candidate for anticoagulation. This evidence comes outside of the realm of sepsis or secondary atrial fibrillation that's occurring during critical illness in patients presenting with primary atrial fibrillation to an emergency room, cardioversions associated with a short-term increased risk of stroke, um, so on the order of weeks. That's without anticoagulation. A decision to start a rhythm control strategy generally is coupled with a decision to anticoagulate. Because if you're converting someone to normal sinus rhythm, you're increasing their risk for stroke. The evidence for that comes from outside of sepsis or outside of critical illness. And is so it's indirect evidence, but still, still worrisome. The, the other thing is that that indirect evidence is also the traditional teaching was that as long as the atrial fibrillation lasted shorter than 48 hours, there was little to no risk of stroke for cardioversion without anticoagulation. But um, some more recent evidence from a study from JAMA showed that the risk of cardioversion without anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation that's lasted you know, about 12 to 24 hours is about 2% um, in, the, in the following week. So it's, it's a real risk. Again, unclear what that what happens during sepsis or what would happen in this patient. But the, the main thing is just to say that when we're considering a rhythm control strategy, we want to think a little bit more strongly about risk of stroke with cardioverting someone. And so generally a rhythm control strategy should be paired probably with a anticoagulation strategy. That makes a lot of sense. Now, um, if we if we take a step uh, step back and just say, or presume to be new onset atrial fib, when we're using a rate strategy, what is your approach to anticoagulation? So our, our studies that are observational in nature uh, have shown that for patients who are started on anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation during sepsis, they don't have a significant decrease in the risk of stroke during that sepsis hospitalization, but do have a significantly increased risk of bleeding. So this is coupled with data that shows that the risk of stroke associated with new atrial fibrillation during sepsis is relatively high. So it's a, it's about 2% during the hospitalization, but giving anticoagulation doesn't seem to re- reduce that, that risk significantly, which may be because the strokes that are occurring during sepsis and atrial fibrillation are not directly caused by the atrial fibrillation. There's lots of reasons to have a stroke. Atrial fibrillation is one of them, and those reasons accumulate the sicker you are. Patients with atrial fibrillation during sepsis are sicker than those that aren't and have a worse prognosis overall. So the HL, the anticoagulation might not be modifying that, that risk of stroke and might be introducing risks of, of bleeding. 
Uh, so for a rate control strategy, which generally has a lower short-term risk of stroke, I will generally wait to start anticoagulation until the patient starts to look more like an outpatient who you can discuss the risks uh, benefits of anticoagulation with. Makes a lot of sense. Heading back to, to the patient. So your, um, your intervention of facilitating blood pressure support with vasopressin and backing off the norepinephrine proved his uh, heart rate and also his, um, his blood pressure came back uh, up into the, the regular range and his uh, lactate was downtrending. Now that uh, we're, we're getting him looking more like more like an outpatient, ready to to kind of transition to the floor, where I personally think all the hard decisions or most of the hard decisions are made. What are the long term outcomes for patients who develop newly discovered atrial fib in the ICU? It's a great question, and it's fascinating to me because if you look at patients' five year outcomes after having had new onset atrial fibrillation during sepsis, the new onset atrial fibrillation during sepsis has stratifies them prognostically for five years. We looked at patients with Medicare data, which is good because you can look at all their, their prior history um, prior to the sepsis and what happens during sepsis and then what happens after sepsis. So for people whose first diagnosis of atrial fibrillation is happening during sepsis, those patients compared to those without atrial fibrillation during sepsis, but similarly severe sepsis from the things we could measure in uh, observational database have higher risks of mortality over five years, high risks of heart failure, um, higher risks of stroke, and about a 40% chance of developing atrial fibrillation again in the year after their sepsis discharge. So these are patients that need in their discharge planning to have that they had atrial fibrillation mentioned and probably have some follow-up arranged with a primary care doctor who can uh, get their heart rhythm measured lo- over the longer term after sepsis or a cardiologist. Uh, so we want to think about longer term rhythm monitoring in these patients to see if they will be part of that 40% who have, have recurrence. The other interesting part is that patients who have prior atrial fibrillation, higher risks of stroke and heart failure than those that had new onset atrial fibrillation during during sepsis. So this new on, this new onset atrial fibrillation during sepsis group sort of has outcomes that are in between those that didn't have AF and those that had pre-existing AF in the long-term post-sepsis course. Super interesting. You can almost see the uh, the heart rate monitoring uh, watches uh, coming into to play on, on maybe addressing some of those those issues, but super, super fascinating. Uh, possibly great, great areas to study. Well, this has been great. Uh, are there any points that you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Can I add two more comments? Yes, please do. The first is, when thinking about a rhythm control strategy. So if you've decided to pursue a rhythm control strategy and deciding what rhythm control strategy to use, you have a variety of choices, including electrical cardioversion, amiodarone, uh, but probably one that isn't um, considered 
enough as it maybe should be. First is a magnesium infusion. Infusion of magnesium, if the, even if the magnesium is normal, in RCTs looks about as effective as amiodarone as a first choice. There are ongoing RCTs that are actually studying this question more in depth, whether a magnesium first strategy is um, the ideal strategy to rhythm convert these patients with new atrial fibrillation during critical illness. But um, that's one thing to think about first before you might go to something like amiodarone. The second thing I wanted to add for this patient that you've described with a history of hypertension and diabetes, that that makes me think about that they have a risk for diastolic heart failure. And patients with diastolic heart failure or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or valve disease, mitral valve stenosis, atrial stenosis, those types of patients often don't tolerate the loss of atrial kick and the loss of ventricular filling that occurs during atrial fibrillation, as well as other patients. So those are patients who, one, you might need to slow the rate quicker or more expediently. Those are patients who may be more prone to require cardioversion or a rhythm uh, control strategy because um, they, they need that atrial kick against uh, either a thick non-compliant ventricle or um, through a tight valve. Well, this has been just fantastic. I can't uh, thank you enough for your time. I would also like to thank the American Thoracic Society for sponsoring this podcast, and uh, we'll be back with you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for inviting me, and thanks for the great uh, conversation and great questions.